If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. was the pitch that Wilson made in 1917. We're not entering this war because we've just become like Europe again. We're entering this war to end all wars, to change forever the terms on which humanity lives with itself. That was Adam I.P. Smith discussing American entry into the First World War. The most significant thing for me is the fact that we can use a shipwreck from the First World War, an archaeological site, to talk about things like equality and social justice. And that was Graham Scott talking about a naval tragedy of 1917. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of April 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. 100 years ago this week, the United States formally entered the First World War, joining the fight against Germany and its allies. It was a decision of great significance both for the outcome of the conflict and the future direction of the USA in international affairs. Historian Adam I.P. Smith has written a piece for the magazine about America's entry into the conflict, and will be presenting a BBC Radio 4 series on the topic in a few weeks' time. 
I spoke to him a little while back about the reasons for America's decision and how it played out with the people of the United States. How did the people of America react to the start of the First World War in Europe? And was there much enthusiasm at that point for joining in the European war? In 1914, Americans looked at the coming of the conflict in Europe and the great majority of them, the great majority of them, thought that this conflict not only had nothing to do with them, but was a kind of vindication of their historical choice and their historical path. Um, This was the European war. That was how it was referred to as, as the European war, right through until 1917, it was the European war. And of course, the United States had a very diverse population. It was a, an even more diverse population in 1914 than it is now, in the sense that there was an even higher proportion. I believe it was around 15% in the 1910 census who had been born outside the United States. And if you include people who had at least one parent who had been born outside the United States, you're getting up to around about a third or more of the total American population who had reason to think of themselves as, in some sense, an immigrant or a first-generation American. So in that sense, and these, and overwhelmingly, these immigrants were coming from uh, Europe. The old source of immigration was Northwest Europe, essentially the British Isles and uh, Germany and and Scandinavia. But from the 1890s onwards, there was called at the time the the new immigration, the new immigration from Eastern Europe, from Russia, from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, Jewish people, um, Italians, Southern Europeans, people, very unfamiliar kinds of immigrants to those who had been long established in the United States. So it was a very kind of mixed, diverse, polyglot nation with many different kinds of routes in Europe through these different types of immigration. But Woodrow Wilson understood as well as anybody that the United States conceived of itself as having made a choice which was different from Europe. It was almost what defined America was its rejection of Europe. And John Dos Passos, the great American novelist who was an ambulance driver, I believe, in the in the First World War and, and towards the end of his life in the 1960s, wrote a wonderful book about America engagement in the Great War, wrote very powerfully about this idea that a rejection of Europe was what America was all about. And so that conditioned the way in which Americans looked at this conflict when it broke out very suddenly, as it, as it seemed, uh, in 1914. What number of people in America do we know on balance supported the British side and how many people were kind of supporting the German side? Well, there was a contingent of Americans right from the outset of the war who were strongly supportive of the uh, Allies and wanted American intervention. And the most prominent of them was the former president, Teddy Roosevelt. And he was supported by a kind of East Coast Anglophile uh, intelligentsia, the kinds of people who went to smart colleges, the kinds of people who frequently crossed the Atlantic and read British periodicals. And that was an influential, although small and elite segment of opinion. Then on the other side, there were people who were actively supporting the central powers, at least in the sense of raising money to support German and uh, and Austrian soldiers and raising money for their kind of widows and orphans and so on. 
the centres of support for the for the central powers were unsurprisingly the German immigrants, especially new German immigrants. And in 1914, on the eve of the First World War, there was a very rich associational culture of German uh, language newspapers, German language schools, music societies in some parts of the United States, in the Midwest and in the, the northeastern cities. And there were fairs held to raise money to support the central power troops. But there was no um, political support for American entry on behalf of the central powers. So that wasn't the debate. It wasn't a question of whether the United States should intervene on one side or if the, the United States ever intervened on the war, there was no question on which side they would intervene on. So the question was whether the Anglophile pro-allied forces led by Teddy Roosevelt and and a few prominent uh, congressmen and and a few prominent newspaper editors, whether they eventually would have their way and would push the United States to intervene on the side of the allies, or whether, as I think the, the great majority of the American population would have wished, the United States should stay out of the conflict. Now, staying out of the conflict could mean different things, of course. I mean, you know, on the one hand, you have what eventually happened, which was the United States not only investing money, but literally sending millions of troops across to Europe. But there were other ways in which the United States could have moved towards a position of supporting the Allies financially, tacitly, diplomatically. What Woodrow Wilson, the position that he took at the beginning of the war in 1914, was that of strict neutrality. In fact, he he said at one point that he that he hoped Americans would uh, be neutral in their in their hearts uh, as well as in their deeds. That's not a, a direct quote, but that was the the, the sense of, of what he was of what he was saying. It has to be said that wasn't really true of Woodrow Wilson himself, who was always more sympathetic to the to the British side and the French side than than to the Germans and was never quite as, I think, dogmatically committed to American neutrality uh, in private as he sometimes uh, appeared to be, as he usually appeared to be in public. But nevertheless, that strict neutrality was the position that the administration took in 1914, and that was being constantly chipped away at. There were a series of events that took place in 1915, 1916, which raised questions about whether neutrality was morally, politically, and even financially, economically justifiable. Coming on to that, what do you think were the real key moments that swayed American opinion from neutrality towards actually intervening on a military level? Well, on one level, there's a fairly simple answer to that question, which was the German resumption of unrestricted U-boat warfare in January 1917. The question of the rights of neutrals, as Americans would cast it, had been the, the great source of tension between the United States and, and all the European powers since the beginning of the war. So the United States claimed that they should have the unrestricted right to trade with any uh, belligerent powers, given the fact that they proclaimed this neutrality. The British Navy, of course, wanted and essentially succeeded in, in stopping any American shipping with the central powers. The German Navy, using submarines, using U-boats, targeted all shipping that was supplying the 
British Isles or France. This sometimes included American vessels. There weren't very many American vessels, actually American vessels under the American flag. The American Merchant Marine was quite small at the beginning of the First World War, but it quite often included uh, American passengers on British ships, and it resulted in the destruction of, of Americans' goods being sent to Europe. There was a very prominent case in the sinking of the uh, of the British ship, the Lusitania, which resulted in the death of a lot of American passengers, many more British passengers, but including American passengers. That led to calls for a strong response for the American government up to and including declaration of war on Germany. Woodrow Wilson was caught in the middle in the wake of the Lusitania incident. On the one hand, his Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, who was the leader of the Midwestern populist uh, wing of the Democratic Party and was a fervent pacifist, on the one hand. On the other hand, he had the pressure from former President Roosevelt and the increasingly vociferous pro um, British lobby on the other. Wilson tried to take a middle line on the Lusitania in that, on the one hand, he condemned the German attack on this British vessel, uh, repeated his call for Germans to cease U-boat warfare in the Atlantic. On the other hand, in a speech in, I believe, in Philadelphia, he, in the wake of the Lusitania sinking, he said, there's such a thing as being too proud to fight. And that was a phrase that came back to haunt him in a way he was much attacked for this. Was it really being too proud to fight or was it, as the likes of Teddy Roosevelt would have it, was it being too weak to fight in the face of that kind of provocation? When the Germans resumed unrestricted um, submarine warfare, were they aware that this would inevitably lead to America entering the war? Yes, I think they were. The Germans had suspended unrestricted submarine warfare. And when they, they announced in January 1917 that they're going to resume it, they certainly knew that this was at the very least a, a calculated risk and that the likelihood is that this would push the uh, Americans into engagement in the war. But I think it probably seemed to the German high command at the time that this was a risk well worth taking because it was far from clear what the nature of American involvement in the war could be, even if there was, as there eventually was, a complete U-turn in American administration's policy and the United States entered into the war, what in practice would they be able to do? They had hardly anything like a navy. They had a very small standing army that was essentially stationed in the West and sort of bogged down in the in the Philippines and the Pacific Islands. There was no tradition of engagement in foreign wars. And the federal government was very weak compared to today. Its capacity to mobilize the American population compared to the reach and scope of the French or British or German government seemed very slight. And the United States was at the very least an extremely divided society over this question. So I think probably to the Germans, it seemed like a risk that was worth taking if the gain of resuming unrestricted U-boat submarine warfare was to starve the British Isles into submission, which was, of course, what they were aiming to do strategically. You said about that in America, opinion was quite divided. Was that even up to the point where war was declared? Were there still competing parties arguing for and against this decision? Yes. I mean, 
when Wilson went to Congress to ask for a declaration of war, I mean, there's a sense in which, you know, Wilson was the one man who was going to be able to bring America into the war in 1917. He'd been re-elected only a few months earlier in 1916 on the slogan, he never said this, but uh, some of his supporters did, the man who kept us out of the war. And the phrase for which he was much attacked by some, too proud to fright, was was used on posters supporting Wilson in 1916. So he had made political capital out of his uh, decision to maintain American neutrality. So on the one hand, this seems the most extraordinary volt fast. On the other hand, I mean, this is obviously a, um, a phrase which Wilson himself wouldn't have understood, but there's a kind of Nixon to China element to this, right? So precisely because Wilson had made so clear that um, he was not going to fight simply because he had some sympathy for the British or for the French, um, that the only circumstances, therefore, in which Wilson was asking for a declaration of war were because he felt, and this is the case he made, that morally intervention in the war was now as necessary as neutrality had been in 1914. That circumstances, because of German belligerency, because of the threat which uh, German militarism now clearly posed, meant that just as it had been America's duty to remain neutral in 1914, it was now America's duty to enter the war in 1917, not simply as another ally of the Allied powers, not because America was getting down into the mud, you know, literally or figuratively um, with the European powers and having a scrap as if, as it were, the Americans had never left the old world, but precisely because of the grand historical mission of the United States. I mean, when Wilson later went in after the Versailles Peace Conference, when he came back to Congress and asked them to approve the Versailles Treaty, including membership of the League of Nations, which famously, of course, in the end, Congress refused to do. But Wilson said then, in making the case for American signature of the Versailles Treaty, he said, uh, said, this is sort of paraphrase, but something like, we had anticipated this moment at our birth, you know, we as a nation, you know, we have been waiting for this moment to enact our universal principles of all men being created equal, of national self-determination, that government should be based on the consent of the government. These are our principles here in America. This is our world historical mission. And now on the threshold of the 20th century, we have the opportunity to bring those values to the world. We are the redemptive nation. It is our world historical function to redeem mankind. It was that grandiose. It was that broad, religious in it in its vision. And that was the pitch that Wilson made in 1917. We're not entering this war because we've just become like Europe again. We're entering this war to end all wars, to change forever the terms on which humanity lives with itself. At the same time, were the British or French governments lobbying within America to try and convince a country to join the war? Oh, yes, absolutely. The the British especially had been lobbying since 1914. And I mean, I should have said that earlier. I mean, you know, you, you were asking or I was talking about the Anglophile political pressures on Wilson 
And some of this was, as it were, genuine uh, domestic elites who always felt themselves very closely allied to Britain and saw that America had an interest in the fight. But some of it was very clever and, and subtle and, and somewhat effective British propaganda. There was a British office in New York opened in the end of 1914, I believe, which was you know, feeding information to newspapers working, you know, lobbying um, persistently. I mean, from the beginning of the war, the British government recognized the potential value of American intervention should the war continue um, for very long, as of course, as of course it did. What kind of impact did American entry have on the war itself? I mean, you mentioned that at the time their army wasn't so big. Was it more of a kind of psychological impact at first? I mean, in in April 1917, the immediate impact probably on the on the Allies was was financial. So what this opened up was the sense in London and in Paris, and that you know the financial situation in British and French governments in the spring summer of 1917 was dire, absolutely dire. They were in desperate need of new American loans. The British government basically had a massive overdraft with the House of Morgan, and it was there was a serious problem pending. American entry into the war opened the possibility that there would be more American loans, which indeed was what happened, um, although that's making a, a complicated story simpler than it was because American entry in itself didn't mean that signed blank text far from it. But nevertheless, in, it, it raised the, the sense, it created the sense uh, in London and Paris that there was a, a lessening of the financial pressure. And it certainly wasn't clear immediately um, after the declaration of war that the United States would be able to deploy troops in any numbers. But within a few weeks, it was clear that that was the intention. What the Wilson administration did in the spring and summer of of 1917 was to, they took a, a crucial decision right at the beginning, which was not to ask for individual volunteers, but to draft the whole nation, as it were, or to draft military age men. The the logic behind this, Wilson's rhetoric, was that the nation had volunteered in mass. That was his phrase. So this was not the forced conscription in the way that the czarist regime might do, Prussian militarism reaching America. This was an American form of conscription whereby all Republican citizens had volunteered to help the republic. What the government then did was to ask uh, every military-age man to register, which they did at their local polling places. There were then around 5,000 local draft boards who uh, totted up the names, compiled registers, gave every man who had registered a draft number. There was, in Washington a grand ceremony um, conducted by the Secretary of War, Newton Baker, who pulled out of a kind of tombola affair numbers in order which gave people their allocation on the draft. So if you were number 258, you were fairly high up in the draft. And if you were a different number, you might be much further down. And then in order men were then having been given their draft number and the draft number then having been pulled out of the hat, men were then called up for service. Around 4 million in the end served in the United States um, forces. 
was ultimately this the decisive war-winning event for the Allies, the fact that America joined in on their side? Well, I'm not a military historian of the First World War, so it's, it, I mean, I'm slightly hesitant about making kind of a grand sweeping judgment about exactly what the impact of the United States was. Clearly, there were other things as well, not least the tactics of, of Haig and the, and the British Army in the, in the autumn of 1918 as well. But um, I think from what I understand is that I think there is a very good case to be made for saying that the infusion of American troops into, onto the Western Front, which really happened from kind of June 1918 onwards, helped to bring the war to an end at the time that it did. And there's certainly plenty of evidence in the, in the, in the memoirs of, of German commanders that it was the presence of American troops in huge numbers which convinced them that they should go for an armistice and that this was a war which, given their strategic objectives, suddenly looked unwinnable after the failure of the spring 1918 German offensive. And certainly the main American military contribution was in the Meuse-Argonne battle, which took place in, I guess, around the last sort of five weeks or so of the war before the armistice of extremely difficult terrain. There was muttered criticism at the time, not least from General Haig, about the kind of rookie nature of American organization and that their transport systems weren't as good as they should have been and that their tactics were a little bit, you know, they, they showed their unfamiliarity with the nature of the conflict. And yet the uh, American expeditionary forces secured their objectives in the Meuse-Argonne battle at great cost. And it was a clear and important contribution alongside the simultaneous British offensive, which helped to put the Germans under sufficient pressure that uh, the armistice came about in, in November 1918. And, you know, certainly had the war not ended uh, when it did, had the armistice not come when it did, then there was an awful lot more to come where the Americans had started, right? I mean, you know, there were more men, there was there was more material, the Americans were learning on the job all the time. And that, of course, was, was clear to the Germans. And I think especially, you know, the British and French armies obviously had been fighting on the Western Front for four years. They were battered. They were hugely weary. The German army, of course, had had an infusion of new men as well in 1918 after the the end of the the eastern front when the bolshevik revolution pulled russia out of the war uh, but this was on an even greater scale than the infusion of new men into the the german army so yes i think it is fair to say that the american intervention in the end was probably among the decisive factors that that brought the war to the an end when it did for america itself how big a juncture in its history is this joining of the First World War? Well, in retrospect, it's huge, by which I mean that if you look back on the decision to go into the war, into the, into the First World War, if you look back on it from the perspective of, of 1941 or later, then it seems like the decisive moment of the 20th century. It seems like the moment in which the United States finally committed itself to a leadership role in the world, militarily and politically commensurate with its economic power. 
But if you looked at it in 1920 or 1924 or 1932, you might have come to a different judgment. It might have looked then, from that perspective, like a strange aberration. Because after the armistice and after the Versailles Peace Treaty, there was a reaction in the United States. Um, the Versailles Treaty wasn't ratified by the United States Senate. And what followed in the 1920s was a period of sometimes called isolationism, but it was a withdrawal from the Wilsonian vision with which he had so messianically urged Americans to enter the war in 1917. In 1924, an Immigration Restriction Act, which essentially closed off immigration from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe and, and, and certainly from, from non-white countries. Uh, the calling in of the wartime loans to Britain and France, which so exacerbated the economic crisis, uh, especially after 1929, pulling out of the London Economic Conference, which was at least an, had been a, an effort in the early 1930s to create a a system to respond to the Great Depression. All of these things indicate an America that after the war was turning back in on itself, who wanted to create a fortress America mentality that as if having kind of dipped its toe in the uh, tumultuous seas outside its, of its islands had regretted it and was retreating back into itself. When uh, Warren Harding who won the 1920 presidential election. And the 1920 presidential election was, was Woodrow Wilson wanted it to be a, a, a solemn referendum on the Treaty of Versailles. Well, it really wasn't that at all. But insofar as it was, it was won by Harding, who was as un-Wilsonian as you can possibly imagine, where Wilson was a, a kind of very learned college professor, deeply reflective man with a deep kind of sense of American history and a, uh, a capacity to write kind of beautifully crafted, thoughtful speeches. Harding was a, a small-town newspaper editor and very self-consciously non-intellectual uh, his call was for America to return to what he called normalcy, you know, by which he meant just like before that whole war thing, you know, let's just get back to how we were, to the kind of, to the good old days and really to the good old days before the new immigration of the 1890s too. So viewed from that perspective then of the interwar period, the American adventure in the Great War seemed like an aberration. But in 1945, Wilsonianism was resurgent. The 1945 settlement, which you know perhaps you might think is is now under threat as 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 never before, the world order created in 1945 seems to me to have been a, a Wilsonian order. You know the the, the uh, institutions to stabilise the international economy, to provide mechanisms for mediating conflicts among nations were an updated attempt to create a world system in the way that Wilson had wanted to do and had so failed to do uh, in 1919. And viewed from 1945, the legacy of the generation who had fought in the First World War was also very important because one thing that happened, those doughboys, as they were called, the draftees who 
fought for Uncle Sam, who fought for the United States in the First World War, their understanding of the war was that it created a new contract between them as citizens and the government. And in the contract, the nature of the contract was that in return for laying their lives on the line and for seeing their friends and comrades, some of them never return from France, in return for that, the federal government had a responsibility. And, you know, at the height of the Great Depression during the Hoover administration, there was a march on Washington by veterans for the First World War calling for a, for a bonus, for a financial handout from the, from the federal government to um, veterans, which the federal government had, had delayed. And, the, and they, the so-called bonus army was demanding an immediate payout. Well, that generation of doughboys, one of them was Harry Truman was hugely influential in the passage of the GI Bill, which provided for the Second World War generation of draftees the kind of guarantees from the federal government that the First World War generation had felt that they had lacked. So it gave the GI Bill established an opportunity for people to get free college education. It, it included all kinds of things like access to mortgages. It was a sense in which the federal government after 1945 was stepping up and saying, as a country, we have a responsibility to help people to avoid the, the trap of poverty into which people had sunk in the late 20s and 30s. We have a responsibility to help people have education. Whereas in Britain, that was framed as a kind of universal welfare state thing. In the United States, it was framed as the responsibility the federal government had to those it had asked to fight and die for it. And it was the First World War generation who helped to solidify that contract between the federal government and the American people. So that's what I would say that, you know, you, your, your question is about what the sort of longer term impact of the war was. And that's why I say it, it, it looked very different from this perspective than it would have done if you'd have been asking this question in the, in the 20 years immediately after the end of the war. I know you you spend a fair amount of time in the United States. Do you have a sense of how big an anniversary this centenary is? Because I've always had the impression that really, for Americans, it's World War II that dominates their thinking far more than the First World. Yes, I think you're right, Rob. The the First World War really is, I think, I mean, it's supposed to be Korea that's America's forgotten war. I mean, really, this is, the First World War really is America's forgotten. There are other American forgotten wars, actually. There are quite a few wars that America's forgotten it's fought. But given its historical significance, it's very striking, actually, how the First World War is not very present in American consciousness. This anniversary, I mean, there are there are events uh, celebrating it, you know, historical societies are, you know, doing lectures, and there are various commemorative events. Um, so, it wouldn't be true to say that it's being entirely overlooked. But you're right that compared with the huge focus on the Second World War, the greatest generation, or of course, the Civil War, um, this is not a conflict which looms very large in the American imagination. And I mean, you know, on one level, that's that's entirely understandable. I mean, it was compared to the impact that the Great War had in Britain or France or Germany, or indeed Russia, the First World War had a, had a very light impact on American society. Obviously, the United States didn't suffer anything approaching the, the level of casualties, either in total or per capita. There was a sense in which people coming back from the war were disillusioned and horrified by 
the kind of fighting they had seen in the way that British and, and French troops were. But, you know, Americans don't come out of the First World War with that sort of modernist, ironic disdain for military glory and for the kind of dripping irony of the idea of um, dying for your country that one gets at least in part. There's a, that's a strain of what comes out of the, of, of the British memory of the First World War, although you see that much stronger later on um, after the Second World War has demonstrated conclusively that the Great War was not the war to end all wars. But I mean, it's even much less in America that really. There are individual episodes that are, that are quite striking. There were a couple of high society New York women, twin sisters, Cromwell, uh, their, their name was Cromwell, who went to volunteer as nurses during the war, who were famous for their organizational skills and for their ministrations of the sick and wounded American forces. When they were returning in 1919 uh, on, a, on a ship, as soon as it had pulled out into the Atlantic, they, in an apparent suicide pact, both jumped over the rail and died. That story you know, struck home at the time in the American consciousness and, and was written up uh, as evidence of the brutalizing effect of the First World War. But there's much less of that in America than there is in Britain. So I think this is all way of saying, I think that's part of the reason why the First World War is not remembered so well. Um, and the other reason is is the political one. I think there's a sense in which, you know, I think if you talk to Americans in very well-educated, you know, historically conscious Americans now about American engagement in the First World War, I think they would find it hard to tell you why America was fighting. I think the Wilsonian idealism somehow hasn't resonated through the generations, at least not in the context that he meant it. You know, the Wilsonian idealism has attached itself to the so-called greatest generation who fought in the Second World War. There, I think Americans are comfortable with the idea that they were the redeemer nation, the essential force fighting to rid the world of Nazism. It's not quite so clear to Americans that there were the same stakes in 1917, although Wilson certainly thought there were. That was Adam I.P. Smith of University College London. His two-part BBC Radio 4 series, entitled America Goes to War, begins in early May. And as I mentioned earlier, he's written a piece on the subject for the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this month's edition, we have articles on the restoration of Charles II, a Tudor dictator, 19th century inventions, and women in popular history. You can get hold of the magazine in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash history US. Now, if you enjoyed last week's podcast on women in popular history, then you may want to check out a video of the discussion, which is available on our website. Look out for it on our homepage or through bit.ly 
forward slash female historians. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now let's return to the First World War and a maritime tragedy that took place in February 1917, when the SS Mendy was sunk in the English Channel. Several hundred black South Africans, en route to the Western Front, were killed in a disaster that continues to reverberate today. Archaeologist Graham Scott has co-written a book about the incident and he's been speaking to our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Your book, We Die Like Brothers, explores the sinking of the SS Mendy in February 1917, which resulted in the tragic loss of more than 600 lives. Can you introduce us to what kind of vessel the SS Mendy was and the role that it played in the First World War? Well, the Mendy was a typical troop ship the First World War. It was actually what we'd call a cargo liner, a ship that was designed to carry both passengers and freight. Um, The difference being that when it was converted into a troop ship, when it was requisitioned for war service, the holes were converted so that instead of cargo, they could uh, carry troops. In the case of the Mendy, it could carry almost 850 of them. Who were the crew that was on the SS Mendy at the time of its final voyage? The crew, like any British merchant ship of of that era, was a sort of a, a polyglot mix of people from all over the world. Um, there were Europeans who were British uh, seamen, of course, but there were uh, Europeans. And there was also at least 25 Africans on board. And that's not surprising because uh, the Mendy before the war had regularly sailed between Liverpool and West Africa. 
that was a trade that had its origins in the terrible slave trade and it was the sort of a colonial successor to that. There was also a large contingent of the South African Native Labour Corps on board. Uh, what was the South African Native Labour Corps and how did they come to be on this ship in, in the English Channel in February 1917? Well, when um, the British Army entered the First World War, um, it was very, very small. Now, any fighting army um, needs not just combat troops, but also um, large numbers of support troops, uh, men and women who um, handle supplies, who build things like uh, the roads and railways that an army requires to fight. Now, the British had very small numbers of these, and gradually as the size of the British Army increased during the war, it, it went from six divisions to uh, 60 in 1918. The number of, um, it was predominantly men in the First World War, required to support them increased greatly. It outstripped the number of men we could source from Britain because, of course, lots were required as fighting troops. So eventually, in 1916, we turned to foreign labourers and they came from a variety of places. Uh, a lot of them came from China, but an awful lot came from the British uh, colonies and dominions of the empire. How were they recruited or perhaps coerced in, into service? Well, there's some evidence that uh, men who came from certain places were coerced. The men of the Egyptian Labour Corps, for example, were often, um, they were farm labourers, I think you call them the Fellaheen. Um, and they lived almost under a feudal regime and there's some evidence that they were, co uh, large numbers of them were coerced. The South Africans came for a variety of reasons. Uh, most um, black South Africans at the time were very poor. Uh, they'd been excluded from the best agricultural land and therefore they tended to be landless labourers working in the white-owned mines and factories. And I think quite a lot of them therefore came because it offered them prospect of a job. Um, but some of them I suppose you could call them the black elite in terms of the educated, perhaps politically aware um, uh, groups within the, uh, the black communities, came at least partly because they thought that by serving the British, they might get a better deal in South Africa. Uh, the, uh, the, the new nation uh, denied the vote to all but a very small minority of the black population and by the, a land act that had been passed, uh, the black population uh, was restricted in terms of the land that they could own or lease. Uh, it was very difficult for them to support themselves so they therefore provided cheap labour for the white uh, f farms and, uh, and factories and mines. This black elite were hoping to do something about that. They felt that if they showed a willingness to serve and to fight, then they might get with the support of the British, that they might get some concessions uh, at the end of the war. And of course, sadly, they were to be bitterly disappointed. What were the working conditions and life like for the black South African men who joined the South African Native Labour Corps? 
they weren't really very good at all. Um, they were treated much as they were in South Africa. Once they got to the got to France, where they would be serving, uh, they were held in closed camps. Um, they were like South African mining camps. And they weren't allowed to leave, and there were fences uh, uh, which prevented them from doing so. And they were subject to what at times could be a very harsh military discipline. Um, partly that was because they were effectively be under the command of, of officers and overseers who quite often had come from a South African mining background, um, which the camps that they stayed in France were based on. As a result, there was quite a lot of discontent because these men expected to be treated better. Um, the reason why they were treated in this way was because the South African government, as one of the conditions of allowing uh, a, a Labour Corps to be recruited from amongst the black population, made it clear that they expected these men to be kept separate from the communities within which they were effectively living. Um, the South African government did not want the exposure perhaps to um, environments in which black people were treated a little bit more equally to raise expectations, to raise political awareness amongst those men, which they then feared might transfer it, itself back to South Africa. So a lot of um, these men were on the SS Mendy. Uh, can you tell us a little about the events in the early hours of 21st February 1917? Yes, well, the uh, Mendy had left South Africa in January carrying um, 824 men of the Labour Corps. And it had arrived in Plymouth on the 19th of February after a fairly uneventful voyage, although I have to say that they were quite lucky because uh, a German uh, surface raider, um, a, a ship that was designed to hunt uh, British merchant shipping, had sighted them uh, just off South Africa, and they, but they were saved by the fact that they had an, an escorting Royal Navy warship. They arrived in Plymouth. They couldn't go on immediately. They were bound for Le Havre in France and they, the idea was that they would sail along the south coast of England and then make a sharp turn and go across the channel. And uh, they couldn't sail immediately because this route had been closed to shipping by the Admiralty uh, and that was because of, first of all, fog, dense fog, and also because the Admiralty were concerned that submarines and the mines they laid were active in that area. But on the 20th, they got their orders to sail, so they set off from Plymouth. Because it was the English Channel, was a sort of nest of U-boats, it really was quite dangerous. The Germans were trying to strangle British trade and war supplies to France. Um, they set off with an escort, HMS Brisk, and they sort of were in convoy, these two ships. Now, towards the evening, uh, the weather the, the started to close in, they started to encounter fog, so they slowed down. By sort of the middle of the night, they were in pretty dense fog uh, and going very slowly. 
But unfortunately, at the same time, there was another vessel crossing the channel from France to England, whose captain was um, less inclined to slow his vessel down. He claimed afterwards that um, he'd been ordered to uh, make the English coast before it was light, uh, although he couldn't substantiate that. And um, he was travelling at full speed. Perhaps he was worried about being caught exposed without an escort uh, in an area where U-boats were known to lurk. But he was going way too fast for the conditions, so fast that there would be no chance of avoiding his vessel if it happened to be uh, in your path. And unfortunately, the Mendy was. And just before five o'clock in the morning, uh, the other ship, the Daro, which was m more than twice the size of the Mendy, charged out of the fog and collided with the starboard side uh, of the Mendy, forward of the bridge, in an area of the, the holds where many of the men of the Labour Corps were, were sleeping. Uh, it crashed into the side of the Mendy. The force was so great that it cut the, Mendy, the, cut the side of the Mendy uh, between the keel, the bottom of the ship, and the deck, and it cleaved a huge hole in it. Uh, water flooded in, and sadly for the Mendy, the watertight bulkhead that was supposed to control flooding uh, was damaged and therefore failed, and therefore the Mendy started to flood uncontrollably. And within about 20 minutes, the Mendy had sunk. Now, it sank so quickly uh, it, that it listed very dramatically towards one side, and that meant they couldn't launch all of the lifeboats. They, they didn't have enough lifeboats anyway. Um, but that meant that most of the men who were on board who'd survived the initial co collision, and we think most of them had, even though it must have been absolutely terrifying in the holds, um, they were forced to jump into the water and swim to the very primitive life rafts that they'd thrown overboard. These were not um, uh, sort of like modern life rafts that you see where you're covered over, that you get in, that have first aid kits, etc. Uh, these were just um, not much more than open boards or um, rubber tubes. Uh, and even if you got on them, you were still in the water. But this was a really unusually cold uh, February. It already caused real misery to the troops in the trenches of the Western Front. But to the... Um, uh, the men on board the Mendy, this cold was absolutely lethal and it was still foggy. So even though HMS Brisk, the escort, doubled back and immediately started to search for survivors, the searchlights just bounced straight back from the fog. And it's very difficult for the men in the boats uh, that, that HMS Brisk launched. They must have worked like Trojans, but it was very difficult for them to find people and then haul them out. So they they really struggled. And there were just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of men in the water. Unfortunately, the actions of the captain of the Daro compounded this terrible situation because even though it was apparent uh, uh, to him very shortly after the collision that his own ship was not sinking, it hadn't been very badly damaged. 
the captain, uh, Henry Stump, uh, didn't do anything else to assist. The, the Daro just sat off in the fog. It accepted uh, some casualties, but they didn't it didn't go and actively search for people, even though they could hear screaming and shouting in the water. There was a board of a trade inquiry after the sinking to look into what caused the sinking, and um, Henry Stump was questioned. And he couldn't really give a convincing explanation as to why he hadn't uh, gone to help. And to this day, it remains a mystery why he didn't try to help, because hundreds more men could have been saved, potentially. It's possible, I suppose, he might have just frozen, uh, been incapable of reacting to what he'd done. After all, it must have been apparent to him that he was to blame, because he'd been going recklessly fast. It could even be it's possible that, that racism could have been a factor. He might not have felt that the uh, these men were worth saving. Perhaps it might have been different if they'd been white troops, but we really don't know. You mentioned there the inquiry yes. um, that happened in the aftermath. What was the immediate reaction um, to the disaster, to the huge loss of life, both in, in Britain and when the news reached South Africa? This response might seem quite hard, um, but of course the loss of the Mendy was, was just one terrible tragedy of a terrible war. So although there was initial shock in, in Britain, um, uh, I think it was fairly quickly forgotten about. Uh, the captain of the Daro, his master certificate was suspended for 12 months. There were a lot of people who thought that was unduly lenient. In fact, uh, an experienced captain at the Board of Trade um, described uh, him as a menace to seafarers. But again, you have to see it in the context of the war. Experienced ship captains were... Uh, in great demand. So although they obviously had to set some sort of example, uh, they didn't want, obviously didn't want to lose him for, you know, a war that they, people could still see as going on for several years. In South Africa, um, news was quite slow to reach um, uh, the, vic uh, the families of the victims. Uh, some of the, I think the, uh, the families of the white officers who were involved, because of course the Labour Corps had white officers, and the the actual men, uh, the labourers were were from black communities. Um, they found out before the official announcement, but they, um, the government. Uh, it was announced in Parliament and there was a mark of respect, etc. But I think it's fair to say that the uh, government of the time there was not keen to um, focus on the um, role played by its uh, black citizens in the war uh, and was not keen to commemorate the sacrifice or even acknowledge the sacrifices that had been made. So aside from that, there really was a stony silence. The survivors and the men of the Labour Corps when they came back from France felt um, rather betrayed by that. Um, that was made worse by the fact that they were not allowed to have pensions and in particular because although the British were initially willing to award it, they were denied the British War Medal. 
it's fairly hard not to come to the conclusion that the British had to some extent deliberately made statements that implied that they would give their support to the aspirations of the black community in terms of it, you know, its political and economic improvement. Um, I think it became apparent after the war that that did not extend to the British Empire and its dominions, um, but to other places. And therefore, the British response when uh, those uh, uh, black South Africans came to ask for assistance was, when, you know, really, we're not very interested. And so they didn't get any help. And um, in the years after the war, um, the political and economic position of black South Africans actually deteriorated. You write that in your book now, um, the Mendy has indeed become that physical symbol of black South Africans' long fight for social and political justice. Um, you've just spoken a little bit about in the immediate aftermath, but can you talk a little bit about um, more about the Mendy's significance in the fight later in the post-war years? Yeah, well, although it was forgotten in Britain, it, w it was really forgotten, even though it was um, one of the worst maritime disasters of the war. Uh, and although it was completely ignored by the South African government, uh, memory of the loss of the Mendy and the men of the Labour Corps um, and the sacrifices that they'd made was preserved in um, uh, the black communities that they came from. Often in the context of self-improvement initiatives, educational things, etc. Um, the day that the Mendy was lost started to become commemorated. It became a sort of unofficial Mendy Day for these communities. And inevitably, um, they became um, a focal point for uh, black political activism. Um, to the extent that eventually the South African government um, uh, became rather worried uh, about uh, Mendy Days and uh, there was, seems to have been, uh, well there certainly wasn't encouragement, um, uh, some sort of suppression. In what way did, did the legacy change in post-apartheid South Africa? Well, I think with uh, a government based on a true majority, um, the government was suddenly prepared to um, place the Mendy in its proper context as being a significant uh, commemorative uh, uh, event. And I think they really embraced that. I mean, they they came up with the Order of Mendy, which is um, one of South Africa's highest honours. And um, uh, they also instituted more officially a Mendy Day and commemorations associated with that and Armed Forces Day. Uh, the South African military embraced it. The Mendy commemorations and initiatives concerning the Mendy are part of that whole process of making, um, uh, you know, South African history and the South African military that is about all of, you know, the whole of South Africa's population rather than a, a white minority.
The, the title of your book, We Die Like Brothers, comes from a speech reportedly given by the Reverend Dioba as the Mendy was sinking. Who was the Reverend? And can you tell us a little bit about the speech that he reportedly gave? Yes. Um, the Reverend's a very interesting character. Um, he was um, part of this um, black elite in the sense that he was educated and politically aware. Um, he was also unusual in that he was really quite old to be going off to the Western Front because he was um, he was 64. Um, now, his background uh, was obviously through the church and he'd been educated at missionary school and he'd gone on to become a political activist in the late, uh, from the sort of very late uh, 19th century onwards. Um, and he'd been involved in various initiatives for um, uh, uh, black improvements, as it were. Um, he was a particular believer um, in um, educational initiatives. He volunteered for service as an interpreter. And I think probably the fact that they were non-combatants meant that they accepted him because of his age. Now, this, the reason why he is famous is because he is supposed to have given a rousing speech on the deck of the, uh, the Mendy that steeled the resolve and courage uh, of the men, who, the, no doubt the terrified men, I would have been absolutely terrified myself, uh, who knew that they were going to end up uh, in the water and might die. And I think he said... Um, now then, stay calm, my countrymen. Calmly face your death. This is what you came to do. This is why you left your homes. Peace, our own brave warriors. Peace, you sons of heroes. Today is your final day. Prepare. It's. I'm not sure that I would have been um, that much calmed by that, but at least you would have known that somebody is, is you know, how can I put it, batting for you. The, and it might have been of some confidence and, and helped you in your resolve to face whatever was coming, uh, a jump into cold, icy water. And that really has gone down in South African history as uh, a, an event of some significance. It's um, the, again, the South African military uh, uh, celebrate it. And it has become something of a legend. But of course, that's possibly just the problem. It might just be a legend because the first reference we have to it is in the 1930s. And it is conceivable that the speech, or at least the version that we've got of it, um, had more to do with political activism at the time than actually what happened on the Mendy. I like to think that it's based on a memory of something that went on, uh, a speech that was given by the Reverend. But as to the wording, we, do, we just don't know. It's very difficult to believe that anybody wrote it down whilst they were standing there facing a jump into that icy water. So you, you and your co-author, John Gribble, first came across the wreck of the SS Mendy in 2006 during your work as marine archaeologists. Uh, you, you write that you very quickly realised the site was something out of the ordinary. Can you um, tell us a little bit more about your work on the wreck? Right. Well, 
I actually came into the story um, uh, because I had a South African colleague who's now the uh, at the time and who's now the co-author of the book, uh, John Gribble. He now works for the South African Heritage Resource Agency, which is the equivalent, I suppose, of our historic England, uh, which um, funded the initial work on the wreck. We didn't find the wreck. We didn't discover it. It was had actually been discovered in the 1970s by a diver called Martin Woodward, um, uh, who lives on the Isle of Wight and who has a, a museum on shipwrecks uh, around the Isle of Wight and has um, some important artefacts from the Mendy in that museum. It really was the territory of recreational divers for quite a long time. Um, this was before the wreck was protected. Uh, and what you would do if you're a recreational diver wanting to go to a perhaps a relatively deep wreck, the Mendy lies 40 metres below the surface, uh, you would go there and quite often, uh, you've got to remember this was a different age when um, what I'm about to describe was much more accepted and, and a, a quite a normal practice. If you're a diver, you'd go down, visit the wreck, have a look at it, uh, and then you might feel that your dive wasn't complete unless you brought back some crockery or even uh, um, a porthole. Now, today we sort of frown on those practices because we know that they damage and denude what is rapidly declining um, uh, an important heritage. We are now benefiting because divers who uh, took um, things like portholes from the wreck are now giving them back. And they're giving them back to, uh, to the South African, the Museum of the South African National War Memorial at Delver Wood. So these things, you know, come around. I, I should say that when the uh, the Mendy was originally discovered after people had been diving it for a while, it acquired um, two nicknames. To, I think depending on where you shopped, it was described either as Safeways or Sainsbury's. Uh, and, and that was simply because you could go to the wreck and come back with bags of goodies just like you what if you went to either of those supermarkets? Uh, not the best reputation to have, but you've got to remember it was in the circumstances of the time. And we as archaeologists have to acknowledge that we have benefited greatly from those divers. As archaeologists, we were concerned to understand the Mendy story. We were also uh, concerned to collate what we knew of the, uh, about the wreck. Now, archaeologists don't normally just head straight out to the wreck. They do a bit of research beforehand. So our initial res uh, work was researching what was already known about the, about the wreck and examining its significance. And that was all web published through Historic England. Um, once we'd done that, we were keen to find out what was still left of the Mendy now, you get a little bit from diver descriptions, but it's not the whole picture. So there was uh, ongoing environmental work um, off the south coast, uh, environmental heritage work to sort of characterise this whole rich area of the seabed um, uh, around the Isle of Wight. And we were able to get a uh, the survey vessel 
to divert a little bit from its course so that it could go of the Mendurek site. And we got some sonar, uh, did a sonar survey and also a bathymetry survey. And that gave us a, a picture, a broad brush picture of what of the wreck was left. And that roughly accorded with what we already knew, although it showed us a continuing progression of decline. Now, at this point, we hoped that we would be able to get, um, go further and do some more survey and uh, have a diving project to go down and record the wreck in more detail. But sadly, that, uh, the, the, the original work we did was in 2006, 2007, 2008. Sadly, that didn't go forward because we couldn't get any funding. However, the wreck was protected under legislation designed to protect war graves, so that meant that people could no longer uh, go down and bring back portholes, etc. Um, so there was a uh, just a, uh, a pause, really, because we couldn't get any funding. However, I think that's sort of changing. I think we're starting to move towards a situation where um, we may now be able to get... Um, a proper archaeological survey of the wreck done. Um, that has already been held by the Royal Navy because we've just had the, hunt, uh, the centenary commemorations of the loss of the Mendy with um, a South African frigate and um, a Royal Navy destroyer uh, and a ceremony uh, uh, laying wreaths on the wreck site. Uh, which was very, very moving to, to, to be there. I was privileged to actually go on the uh, South African frigate for the, for the ceremony. Um, but as part of the, the help that the Royal Navy is giving, um, uh, they uh, carried out another geophysical survey and their divers have been on the wreck and I'm hoping we're going to get the data that they've, they've got. And we're hoping to focus on what the Royal Navy did um, in uh, uh, both at the time of the loss of the ship and now um, uh, in uh, an education resource pack that um, the charity I work for, Wessex Archaeology, um, is, uh, well, we've already had one. We're now improving it, um, again, with the support of Historic England, the support of the South African government, and now with the support of the Royal Navy and the Ministry of Defence. So we're going to focus in the Education Resource Pack a little bit on the help that the Royal Navy has given then when HMS Brisk uh, uh, tried to rescue the men of the Mendy, and now where the Royal Navy is helping uh, archaeologists um, record the wreck. The most significant thing for me is the fact that we can use a shipwreck from the First World War, an archaeological site, to talk about things like equality and social justice. There is a, a case to be made that we haven't focused enough on the non-combatants who helped in the war. Um, and that, you know, perhaps until these centenary commemorations of the First World War also applied to uh, anyone whose uh, colour of skin was not white um, because I think we've focused, um, uh, for understandable reasons, on the sacrifices made by predominantly British and 
um, Dominion troops on the Western Front um, during that war. And we've forgotten the huge numbers of uh, men and sometimes women who contributed either by fighting or uh, by labouring in, in some way um, uh, and who came from all over the British Empire and its dominions and fought not just on the Western Front but in many other places. That was Graham Scott. His book, We Die Like Brothers, The Sinking of the SS Mendy, co-written with John Gribble, is out now in the UK, published by Historic England. In the US, it will be released in May by the same publisher. And now it's time for this week's History News with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. Villagers in medieval Yorkshire mutilated the bodies of corpses to stop them rising from the dead, an archaeological study has revealed. Experts examined 137 pieces of human bone from the deserted medieval village of Warren Percy. The remains, which date from the 11th to 14th centuries, belonged to people from the local area, aged between 2 and 50. They had been dismembered, smashed and burnt. Scientists have dismissed theories that the damage resulted from cannibalism during times of famine, instead concluding that the bodies were deliberately mutilated after death in order to prevent the restless dead from returning to haunt the living. In other news, the suffrage campaigner Millicent Fawcett will be the first woman commemorated with a statue in Parliament Square. The news follows an extensive campaign and a petition signed by more than 74,000 people. Prime Minister Theresa May made the announcement last weekend, stating, The example Millicent Fawcett set during the struggle for equality continues to inspire the battle against the burning injustices of today. Meanwhile, a 17th century notebook containing jottings about the work of Shakespeare has been discovered. Written in the same century that Shakespeare was working, it features quotes from his plays, suggesting that the author must have either attended early performances or read some of the first printed editions of Shakespeare's work. After being found in the collection of an 18th century antiquarian, the notebook was appraised by manuscripts expert Matthew Halley on the BBC's Antiques Roadshow, where it was given an estimated value of £30,000. Halley stated, There weren't many people who were literate at the time, or many people who would have had access to printed editions of Shakespeare. It's such a fascinating mystery. The value to scholarship is enormous. OK, well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the father of history, Herodotus. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.